Welcome everyone. Today I have Dr. Rebecca Resnick of Resnick and Associates, and she is a licensed psychologist who does testing and evaluations as well as counseling. She's going to do a deeper dive into what she does and how she helps people. The purpose of this video is to give the viewers, you, an idea of what testing is, when to know whether or not you should take your child to get tested, and to really clarify, is there any difference between private testing, which is what Rebecca does, not paid for by insurance and not provided by the school, or the in-school testing for placements and things? And we're going to go over all of those, hopefully dispel some of the myths, and really help you understand when you should take your child to get tested, how often should that be happening, what types of things to be looking for. So to get started with us, Rebecca, would you mind sharing a little bit about but your background? You came to this in a roundabout way. You were a public school teacher first, right? I was, yeah. That was my passion from a very early age. I come from a family with a lot of people with learning disabilities. And so getting into special education and the social justice aspects of special education, that was my passion. I got my bachelor's and my master's, went out and started teaching public school and soon figured out why so many people burn out within the first five years. It is so much harder than any other job I've had except for having a newborn. So teaching public school wore me out really fast, but it was great experience because I learned a lot about how things work and the discrepancy between how they're supposed to go and what actually happens in the real world to kids. And so now having gone back to school, I got my psychology degree. I had a couple kids. I've gotten older and now I have a private practice where there's 14 of us and we do testing and psychotherapy and it is a private group practice. So I'm not part of the public school system anymore, but I'm still very much part of the education community and helping people think about what should be happening for kids and how we can make sure that all the kids get a chance to achieve their potential. And you're based in Maryland, Montgomery County, right? Yep. Although with C-19 and the quarantine stuff, you are still doing testing remotely and virtually. Or on occasion, I guess you've loosened it enough to allow people to come to the office if they feel comfortable, right? Yeah. As I shared with you, Eric, I think part of the reason we get along so well is that we're both very like realistic, practical people and maybe kind of pessimists as well. So as soon as I started to hear the medical reports about what was happening with COVID, I said to my colleagues, we're going to be closed down for a long time. It's going to be very long before it's safe to bring someone into the office for testing. So how are we going to make sure that we don't drop the ball and leave all of our clients in the lurch when they're counting on us? And so we got up to speed on telepsychology and we've been doing a lot of teleassessment and I've been doing house calls. Some of my staff and I will go to people's backyard or set up a little pop-up canopy and we'll do the testing outside. Some of the colleagues in my practice feel comfortable doing face-to-face, sort of in all the PPE and the masks. And the hardest challenge right now is for all of us in psychology to figure out how are we going to serve our clients without putting them in danger. Everyone is wrestling with this, and it's still very much up in the air as people figure it out. And that's a good segue into what does testing entail? If you're able to do it via televisits and via pop-up tents, and you don't have to be in person. I mean, what all is involved in testing? What are you testing for? 
my son was tested almost 16 years ago now. I mean, really with the full to get the diagnosis. So I really don't remember. And I'm sure things have changed since then. I would hope. <laughs> but would you mind just sharing what can parents expect? And it's only psychologists that do these tests, right? Or Psychologists do the vast majority of the testing. We are the professionals that have the advanced training in statistics, psychometrics, cognitive functioning, diagnosis. That's a huge part of what psychologists do. So sometimes developmental pediatricians also do testing, and their testing tends to be much more focused on a medical diagnosis. So say if you have a kid with a seizure disorder, autism spectrum disorder, your first stop may very well be the developmental pediatrician, which is often nice because they tend to be better covered by insurance than regular psychology testing is. Some counselors do testing. The really important thing when you're considering getting your child tested that most parents don't think of is you have to be so careful to select someone who has earned a professional license. Okay. There's folks who have certifications and sometimes like a nationally certified school psychologist will be the person who will do your kids testing if it's part of the school system. A certification is great, but what you really want is for somebody to have earned the appropriate credentials and have oversight. So I have a professional license and like all other psychologists, I live in terror of any threat to that license because I had to work so hard to get it. So we're overseen by a state board, just like every other healthcare provider, to make sure that we take good care of our clients and that we're practicing according to the ethical standard. And if you get your testing done by somebody who doesn't have a license or a certification, you may get great testing, but you may not because you don't really have any way of knowing that that person's been vetted and that they're being supervised and checked up on and have appropriate malpractice insurance and all of that. So what is psych testing? It's a process where the psychologist is doing systematic behavioral observations, giving your child tasks, basically to see how your child's brain is functioning. So there's different kinds of testing. You may have heard that you need autism testing. And typically that means you're going to go to a hospital or some designated center where you're going to have maybe a speech pathologist, maybe a psychologist or a developmental pediatrician administer just the ADOS. So that can be a good starting point. It can also be very frustrating because a lot of times when you go to a big medical center, it can feel very impersonal and it can be kind of traumatic to have you know your child seen for this one assessment and then you get a statement like either yes, your child's autistic or no, your child's not autistic, but it will be covered by your insurance and it will give you a good starting point. They'll have yeah. a waiting list typically, right? It'll typically they, be oh my big. goodness, yes. So. Around here, a lot of folks go to the Kennedy Krieger Institution in Baltimore, which is world famous for doing exceptional work. And because they're world famous and they do such exceptional work and they take insurance, their waiting list tends to be about six months. Now, if you get on the waiting list, you never know, you might get lucky. I would never say don't go to Kennedy. But if you're going to go to Kennedy, just expect that the waiting list will be long. Some of the smaller hospitals have shorter waiting lists. Like I trained at Mount Washington Pediatric Hospital in Baltimore, and our waiting list was long, but it wasn't quite as long as Kennedy's because we were a smaller hospital. We were a rehabilitation sort of facility, so slightly different. So psychological testing is all about figuring out who your child is as a person and how their brain works so that you can gather the test data and use the test data to inform interventions. Psychological testing outside of the schools 
leads you to a diagnosis if a diagnosis is warranted. A lot of people confuse diagnosis with a label. So often what parents feel like is, I don't want anybody labeling my kid. And what's important to remember is that the world is labeling our kids all the time. They're labeling all of us all the time. And labels come from ignorance. So if your kid has been labeled like the troublemaker, like my kid could never sit still. And so I'm sure his teacher had some labels in her mind for why that was. I would much rather her have understood his diagnosis was ADHD instead of just assuming that he was a kid who was wandering the room, refusing to sit still. So your objective in psych testing is gathering data so that you can help people understand who this person is and what kind of supports they need. So there's different types of psych testing and parents are often really confused because they may get advice from different people about what type of testing to get. And here's how it breaks down just really quick. So particularly specific autism testing is usually what it's called. And that's really just focused on, does this child meet the diagnostic criteria for an autism spectrum disorder? And sometimes you might be told that you should get what's called psychoeducational testing. Psychoeducational testing focuses on cognitive processes, things like memory, general intelligence, processing speed, and it also includes assessment of how well the child's performing academic tasks and foundational tasks for things like reading, writing, mathematics. Psychoeducational testing may be exactly what you need if you're trying to figure out how to craft an IEP or 504 plan or what the child's educational placement should be. Another type of testing is neuropsychological testing. And people get confused because they often assume that neuropsychological testing is like the Cadillac. And I know I date myself by saying Cadillac. Let's choose something more modern. Tesla. The Tesla, very, oh, Eric, you're so cool. Yeah, the Tesla, the Tesla of testing, expensive and somehow more awesome. Well, here's what neuropsychological testing actually is. The only people who can do neuropsychological testing are people who have formal training in neuropsychology. The tests don't make it a neuropsych eval. What makes it a neuropsych evaluation is the training of the person. So I can do neuropsychological testing because I have formal training in a hospital in how to conduct neuropsychological testing, how to interpret test results using the neuroscience and our understanding of brain behavior relationships and how brains develop over time. So neuropsychological testing may be what you need if you have a child who's more complicated. You're going to need a neuropsychological testing battery if your child has something like a seizure disorder, which a lot of kids on the spectrum also have seizure disorders. Any kind of medical condition that's interfering with your child being able to learn or function at school. If your child has particularly complex learning disabilities, or perhaps they have multiple diagnoses, like they may have autism, they may have an underlying language-based learning disability, they may have anxiety, they may have developmental coordination disorder. And if you're trying to understand a, a particularly complicated child, then neuropsychological testing can be much more helpful than psychoeducational because psychoeducational is much more focused on what's getting in the way of learning and how do we remediate that? How do we address that? Neuropsych is getting more at the why is this happening? What can we understand about this child's brain? So to just reiterate, the big three that people are going to be hearing about are going to be autism testing, psychoeducational testing, and neuropsychological testing. Mm -hmm. Now, I know from what I've seen in Maryland and other states, to qualify for some of the waivers, they're going to ask specifically for, you mentioned the ADOS, the ADOS, yes. I think it is. They'll, mm -hmm. they'll call for that as one of the tests that 
they want to see to qualify for certain waivers. Right. So the ADOS is a very fine instrument, but there's some confusion out among the public that for some reason, the ADOS has gotten tagged with this moniker of being the gold standard. It's a very fine test. It's not necessarily the test you would pick to understand every single person. So unfortunately, I think a lot of attorneys have used the term gold standard. There really aren't gold standard anointed tests in the community of psychologists and neuropsychologists. We have tests that have better psychometric properties and we have tests that have worse psychometric properties. And that just means we have tests that are better designed and better proven to be valid and reliable than others. But yes, a lot of times insurance companies to approve something like applied behavior analysis services to be covered by your insurance, they may insist that you have this one particular test. It's not particularly appropriate that some bureaucrat in your insurance company is dictating what kind of test your child should have. But that's the reality. And one of the best places to get an ADOS done is often your local pediatric hospital. A lot of people are trained in the ADOS and can administer it. But what you have to keep in mind is that the ADOS, it's nice tool for diagnosis, but it doesn't tend to give you the same information that would be useful for, say, picking a class placement, just informing the IEP, trying to figure out what accommodations this child should have, what kind of therapy should this child have. It's a good place to start, but not a good place to finish. Thank you for making that clarification, Rebecca. And the other one that I'm familiar with, and I think is a rather, to use your word, arbitrary or not the best method, but there's state waivers that require you to have an IQ below 70 to get that diagnosis of an intellectual disability. Right. So is the IQ testing considered another one of these or is that its own thing? Yeah, Eric, you have such great questions. These are the types of things people are wondering about all the time. And honestly, a lot of psychologists don't really know a lot about special education laws and eligibility laws. And so SSI and DDA services, both rehab. So you do oftentimes need people like you to complement what the psychologist can do and help you make more use of the psych test data. So IQ testing is different from the ADOS. So the ADOS is really about assessing to determine if somebody meets the full diagnostic criteria for being on the autism spectrum. An IQ test measures basic cognitive functioning. And we romanticize a lot about what it means to have an IQ at a certain level. There's certainly a long, sordid history of IQ tests being used for racist purposes and to kind of propagate ideas that some people are not as good as other people. So we have to be very careful and thoughtful about how we use IQ tests because the information from an IQ test can be a very powerful thing that can have long-term impact on how a child is served and even how they're served all the way up through adulthood. So when you're talking about qualifying for the diagnosis of intellectual disability, there's two pieces that has to happen there. One is which a psychologist or somebody with appropriate training has to be able to evaluate the person's cognitive functioning. And you also have to consider and formally assess the person's adaptive behavior. So not everyone does well on IQ tests, particularly kids on the spectrum, because they can often do a lot of fantastic things, but put them in the very structured rule-governed situation of an IQ test where you're saying to them, you know, define this word, put these blocks together, you know, trace this figure. A lot of them have a really hard time with that. And so they can't really show what they can do. And so civil rights case law commands us to 
not only use IQ test data, but also to use what we call adaptive functioning data. And that's how well can they do basic tasks of living and how well can they do academic tasks? So if you have somebody who, say, scores, let's say, a 69 on an IQ test, but their adaptive functioning shows that they're really performing very well and that the IQ test is very discrepant from how they're actually functioning in the world, then we would not make a diagnosis of intellectual disability. It's important when your child is going through high school and getting ready to age out. You know, people in the autism community will call this falling off the cliff because our transition services often let people down. And that's an unfortunate thing we need to fix about our field. It's really important to get an IQ test and a psychologist if you think your child may have intellectual disability or you know that they have intellectual disability, you want to get that documented by a licensed psychologist before they turn 18. That way you can have the appropriate documentation that you need to apply for SSI, DDA, book rehab, and all sorts of transition services. And you'll also have a better understanding of how likely your child is to need different types of supports in the community. And I'll tell you, Rebecca, there's states First one that comes to mind is Connecticut. If you have an IQ of 70 or better, you're not going to receive services. You're not going to qualify. And I mean, Connecticut is just one of the states. There's others, but Connecticut just comes to mind. It's good to know that even though the waiver program is having this arbitrary number for the IQ, you need the IQ diagnosis for that, but it doesn't really define and it shouldn't define what your child is capable of. So don't say, oh, my child has an IQ of 66 on paper. They'll never be able to live independently with supports. I'm going to have to take care of them forever. Right. Yeah. When IQ tests are designed, they are designed for the most neurotypical of neurotypicals. They're tested on thousands of kids all over the country. They try to make a diverse sample as possible, but they don't include a lot of kids with disabilities when they design these tests. They are designed to be one size fits all, comfortable and accessible and valid for the majority of children. So you always have to consider your test results in light of who this person is that you're working with and how do you understand this person. Just walking away with an IQ test number tells you very little about what kinds of supports someone's actually going to need in the environment, particularly when you're talking about somebody who's autistic. You know the saying, if you've met one person with autism, you met one person with autism. If you tell me your child is an eight-year-old third grader a boy attending, you know, school in Maryland, I can tell you a lot about what your child is like, what they like to do, what's hard for them, what's easy for them, probably what movie they would want to see or what video game they would want to play. If you tell me a child is an eight-year-old third grader with autism, so many things could be going on because there's such a wide variety. And unfortunately, with our spectrum, we've now collapsed everyone under the label of autism. So we've lost the granularity that used to allow us to describe, well, here's more about what that person's actually like and what works for them and what doesn't work for them. But now everybody's just in that one box of autism. And so a lot of us were frustrated by the decision to get rid of all the different ways of describing people that were more helpful and more descriptive. I don't really have anything to add to that. I will keep my opinion to myself, but it doesn't stray far from yours. <laughs> yeah, look, I, I'm about to turn 47, so I got a lot of opinions. <laughs> but, you know, the, the important thing about opinions is that you have to be able to back them up with solid research. So that, yeah. that you know, we definitely have opinions, but I like to think that my opinions change as I learn. That's kind of all you can aim for in this world. I agree. I mean, I heard it somewhere on one of the podcasts I listened to, strong opinions loosely held. 
Like, have a strong opinion. Be open to changing your mind if somebody presents contrary data to what you're used to. Don't be looking for what's going to prove your point. Yeah, yeah. Particularly when you're a clinician, you do have a huge responsibility to keep learning and keep your eye on the research. I mean, as you and I were talking before we got started, I got my special ed degrees in the mid-90s. You know, what we've learned about things like dyslexia and autism, it's night and day compared to what the state of the art and the science was back in those days. So we're always needing to remind ourselves to be humble and don't make any assumptions that we know something because what we think we know could be turned on its ear, you know, with one more scientific discovery. Exactly. Exactly. And I love this slide. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I think it's pretty apt, right? Because I'm on a lot of Facebook group chat and I do see a lot of messaging going back and forth about when to get your child tested. Mm -hmm. You're very clear that if you know or you believe somebody has an intellectual disability to get to testing done before 18, Mm -hmm. what are some of the other milestones when you should be getting testing done? Mm -hmm. So let's sort of go in chronological order. So let's start out, you know, you have your beautiful baby and all your dreams come true and... (laughs) You know, you're reeling from lack of sleep. And when you have your first baby, I can speak from experience, you're figuring it out as you go along, getting to know this new little person who's nothing like you expected that they would be. They don't look like kids in the diaper commercials. So the really difficult thing for parents is that they're often not given really good information about developmental disabilities and whether or not they should actually have a professional in the mix to do some kind of assessment. I often hear parents their gut tells them that something's not right. And they're sort of patted on the head like, okay, helicopter mommy, don't you worry. You're just a new mom or you're just a new dad. Pat you on the head too. You know, he's just a boy or, you know, oh, you're raising him in a bilingual home. Don't worry about it if he's not talking. You know, we naturally as professionals, we want to make people feel better and comfort them. And your relatives will do this too. They'll try to sort of blow off and deny very valid concerns. But if your gut is really something is not right here, go and get it checked out. Wouldn't it be nice to have the peace of mind? You don't necessarily need to sign up for like a huge testing battery, but even sitting with somebody, hiring a psychologist to sit down and talk with you about your child's development or a developmental pediatrician, that's a really good starting point. And if that person's honest and ethical, they'll tell you whether or not doing the testing is actually necessary. We also too tend to get parents who are really terrified of what psych testing is and what it would mean for them and what's going to happen if they bring their child into a professional. Because for a lot of parents, it feels like, well, once we go down that road, all sorts of bad things are going to happen. Our kid's going to get labeled. People are going to force us to put our kid on medication. They'll be shunted off to a special classroom. And so we have a lot of fear based on the stigma about what it would mean to get our child assessed. Getting that first assessment can be really terrifying. And you have to keep in mind, if you're getting your child assessed when they are under six years old, a lot of that is like a snapshot of where your kid is at that particular moment. We call it present level of performance. So you often find that there are kids who get assessed during early childhood And the picture changes drastically as they develop because during early childhood, that brain is going through so many different stages of development that so many things are coming online that the data you got when your child is two may not be very useful when your child's five and a half and you're trying to figure out what should be happening in kindergarten. 
It's also really important, again, to pick a licensed clinician who specializes in younger children and understands how to work with like toddlers and young children so that your child's really comfortable. When I worked at the hospital, we had these sort of group assessments for kids where the child would come into the room and there would be like five of us in there and everyone in the room would do like some piece of the assessment and the child may have just had a physical. And so, you know, I don't know about you, but after my kids had physicals, they weren't in a really good headspace to then sit and do a bunch of cognitive tests for a whole bunch of people they didn't know. So those things can be a really good starting point, but again, not always where you want to finish. But having some kind of objective data from somebody outside the family who doesn't love you and is not trying to either calm you down or rile you up, somebody who can give you some sort of honest, objective information about your child's strengths and weaknesses and whether or not they're developing in the way that's expected or whether some unexpected things seem to be happening. With that in mind, if somebody is born with Down syndrome or chromosomal disorder Mm -hmm. or something like that, Should it be an automatic assumption that they're going to need psychological testing? Well, it depends. (laughs) So the times have changed now. And for a lot of families, when there's a chromosomal difference, particularly a trisomy, the family's already aware and they're already prepared. It's not like in the old days when you would often be very shocked by a chromosomal difference. And you very shamefully, back in the old days, if your child was born with a difference, they were like written off immediately and you were often encouraged to put them right in an institution until your relatives the baby died. So that's where we were like a hundred years ago, back in the heyday of eugenics and racism and all that. But what's happening now a lot of times is that there are subtle chromosomal differences that aren't necessarily flagged before the child's born and parents will find out later on. Genetic testing is improving all the time. So things that we could never have known about 20 years ago, now are something that gets diagnosed all the time. For example, like microdeletions. Nobody heard of a microdeletion 40 years ago, but now microdeletions are something that can be diagnosed reliably. So to your question, do you want to necessarily get a psychological evaluation? I would say yes. But then again, if everything's rolling along and your child is happy and learning and making progress and you're getting the right kind of services through the school system, do you necessarily need to pay out of pocket for a big, elaborate, expensive psychobel? Maybe not. Sorry. If you got involved in early childhood or birth to three or whatever it's called, mm-hmm. they're going to do some kind of assessment, right? I mean, that's part of the intake. Uh, Generally? Theoretically, yes. Un- <laughs> so under special education law, every child has the right to be identified. Some kids will get some formal testing. So in those early years, you may get a Bailey, a PEP. They may do like a preschool language scale. They may do the Mullen scales of early development, the DAYC, the DIAL. There's lots of early childhood assessments. And again, you want to keep in mind that those are really like a Polaroid of where the kiddo is at that particular time. But getting some actual data is very helpful. Even if your child can't cope with it at all, that's really useful information to know. You want to know that about your child. And those assessments are really important to qualify your child for services like OT, PT, and speech and special education preschool. Without the testing, the door is closed getting those services. Your child has to be documented as eligible for special education services. So a lot of parents resist getting that testing 
out of concern of the stigma or what might happen. But it is really important for them to have some kind of data so that they don't completely misread the situation. And again, it's like a hoop you have to jump over from being ineligible for services to being eligible for public services. But does that mean the parents have to run out to an office like yours to get these private tests to go to the school and say, okay, I got my testing? Or should they expect the school to say when they sign up and they get involved with the early childhood, if the school isn't suggesting these, they should be asking, right? The answer shouldn't necessarily be to run out to get private testing. Not necessarily, no. And not everybody needs to get private testing. You want to get private testing if your child's particularly complicated. And if your child's complicated and has a whole bunch of stuff going on, getting a neuropsych at at your local pediatric hospital is a really good idea. If you have the means to get private testing or you want a different experience than what you get at a medical center, having trained in a medical center myself, it's not always a really comfortable experience for the child and the family. You know, your child's walking into a medical center. It smells like a medical center. You're probably getting trained by some students and having been a student, you know, students are still learning. They're making mistakes. They're trying to figure it out. A lot of them are parents themselves and so don't have the same kind of kid sense that those of us with gray hair do. So there's reasons to go for medical versus school testing versus private testing. And a lot of it really depends on is your kid getting what they need? If they're getting what they need and you feel like your child is happy, making progress, achieving up to their potential, then you don't necessarily need to spend a whole bunch on private testing. But if things aren't going well, if your child, say, exhibiting aggressive behavior or not making progress or you're getting called into the school all the time, like you have to pick up Harry because he's you know been bad again, that's not good. That's a sign that something's off and you need to get more information. If you've been to the medical negative, let's say, because Down syndrome doesn't need a test. You you know that. So let's say autism, they go and they get tested. And then the school is saying, okay, we have the autism diagnosis, but there's no associated learning disabilities or whatever. Bear with me. You're just opening that Pandora's box, Eric. (laughs) (laughs) But then to your point, the parent is finding, well, my child's getting C's or D's or incompletes repeatedly. And I just really don't understand how you can be telling, is there a disconnect here? Or maybe the child had a really phenomenal day when the testing occurred with the school, or mm-hmm. then they could reach out to you and or whatever state they're in a similar private test and go get that testing, right? Yeah. Okay. So like I said, under the special education law, every child with a disability has the right to be identified. So the first step in that path is often when somebody makes a referral. So it can be you, can be a teacher, can be a guidance counselor, administrator. So in terms of special education, somebody has to get that ball rolling. Somebody has to get the glacial process of special education services moving. And part of what is important in that process is that they're going to do some kind of assessment If a child can't tolerate formal testing, they'll do an observation and record review, but they need to gather some kind of data. Again, because your child has the right to be assessed so that they can make sure that they're actually giving you decent services that are based on your student's learning profile. So if you want to go through that process through the school, you'll have a school psychologist will do the testing and possibly other people may do the testing too. 
So like a special educator may do part of it, a speech person may do part of it, an OT or PT or social worker. A lot of times in public school, the school psychologist is spread so thin and has such a huge caseload that they're only doing the piece of the assessment that they can do. So you may have the school psychologist give the IQ test. You may have the special educator give an achievement test. You may have the speech person give the speech eval. The OT person does their eval. The social worker does the interview. And then all of those pieces really don't get put together until the multidisciplinary team meeting. So it can be kind of crazy making for parents to figure out like, well, what's going on? One of the things that parents don't always realize is that school psychologists are not there to provide you with a medical slash psychiatric diagnosis. They're there to inform the special education eligibility process. So their testing is designed to inform educational placement decisions, school interventions, classroom, special programs. So you'll see a lot of times parents get frustrated with school psychologist reports because there's no diagnosis. It'll say something like, I'll use my own kid's names, Harry's presentation is consistent with that of a child with a diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder. It will be up to the multidisciplinary team to make this determination. So they don't generally diagnose. What happens is that you get all of the psych test data into the multidisciplinary team meeting, and then people agree on a service provision code. And that service provision code is not a diagnosis. It's an eligibility code. So there's a whole bunch of codes laid out in the law, things like autism, specific learning disability, hearing impaired, vision impaired, emotionally disabled, otherwise health impaired, which is where the ADHD kids get dumped. So that's not actually a diagnosis. It's a code saying child's eligible for special education services because they have some kind of disability. Kids under eight are almost always given a diagnosis of developmental delay because that's kind of a catch-all diagnosis. And so you'll have developmental delay for years until all of a sudden they're eight and parents can often be blindsided like, wait a minute, you're now you're diagnosing intellectual disability. Now you're diagnosing autism. You never told us that. You said it was a developmental delay. That's part of the law. And it can be a, a really kind of rude awakening for parents all of a sudden when the kid's eight, the conversation can change very drastically and they'll learn things that they weren't actually told. So that's school testing. And for a lot of kids, school testing is just fine. But then you may decide that your child has a more complicated issue or a medical issue and you want to get testing done either at a hospital or a private clinic. So we've talked a lot about hospitals. Here's the deal with private testing. If you're going to a place where you have a clinical psychologist who's not affiliated with a school, those people are should be independently licensed clinical psychologists. You should be able to check their credentials. The people who know whether or not somebody does a good job, whether somebody like me does a good job or is absolutely horrible, is often not the people who've been to see us. The people who've been to see us often know if we were like nice or if our office was nice or if we had an easy place to park. You know, did we put out snacks? Did we give their kid a prize? It's so hard to shop for a psychologist because it's like shopping for a lawyer or a roofer. You have no idea if they did a good job for you until something goes really wrong and you go, oh my gosh, what did I do? So with psychologists, the people who really know are people whose job it is is to read psychological test reports. So you're talking about people like special education lawyers, educational advocates, pediatricians, your school guidance counselor, even though they're not supposed to recommend private testers. They often will because they want to point you towards people who are ethical and well-trained. So take the advice of your friends or mommy bloggers or, you know, Facebook. Face, oh my gosh. 
Facebook kind relatives, your mother-in-law, take all of that with a grain of salt because those folks, they know the experience of maybe having worked with that person once, maybe twice, maybe three times, but that's not the same as knowing not just how did that person do for this one situation, this one particular kid, this one particular family. You want somebody who's seen a lot of different psychobals and who can compare and contrast what person is the right fit and which person has the right skill set. And then I think you can do a deeper dive into finding out bedside manner and approachability. And Mm -hmm. because I get it, there's people that are very good at their jobs that have very poor bedside manner. Yes. Um, (laughs) In psychology, what? I personally prefer people like that. I don't really want somebody that's going to try talking my ear off if I'm going in to see them. I want to get in, I want to get out. (laughs) But that's where the families come in. I mean, that's where the mom groups and the things can come in is, what was your experience? Yes. And in psychology and psychiatry, we haven't paid much attention in the past century to the experience of what it's like for people to come and see us. So the experience can often be awful. It can be overly clinical. It can be really hurtful. If somebody gives you upsetting or bad news in a kind of a mean, cold way, or even worse, if they're blaming you for what's happening with the child or shaming you when you're just doing your best trying to get through the day. I've heard of psychologists you know, using really pejorative language to talk about kids or, or even blaming the kids for their own problems. We need to get a lot better there. And the really hard thing is to find somebody who's earned their credentials, who's put in a lot of time, money, energy, sacrifice into getting really good credentials, who's not going to traumatize the heck out of your child or you. I know you're not supposed to say this, but I personally look for somebody who's a parent themselves. There's certainly a lot of brilliant people out there who are practicing who haven't had the experience of raising their own kids. I feel like I'm so much of a better clinician now that I've had the experience of, say, being thrown up on at 3 a.m. or, you know, having to take your kid to the ER or just knowing what it feels like when somebody criticizes your child and how hurtful that really is. So, again, I know you're not supposed to say this. I tend to look for people who have kids of their own who really understand the bond between parent and child and how terrifying it is when something is not going well. If only because when somebody has a child, more often than not, they know what not to say because they know what they wouldn't want to hear. Not that they wouldn't say what needs to be said, but how to say it without being mean. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. The history of psychology, remember the whole Canner blaming the mother? Canner was one of the first people to publish on autism, but he had a lot of really nasty ways about him. So he would basically scold the mother and say, your child is defective because you're a refrigerator mother and you're not showing love. And then we have the Freudian tradition of blaming parents for when things aren't going along typically in their child's development. And it's an awful tradition and we need to do a much better job of making sure that we are healers and we are warm and kind If we have to give bad news or if we have to tell people like, hey, things are going to be different than you were expecting to do that in a way that is as respectful as possible. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I want to touch on this because you've covered so much. I want to make sure people understand if they go to see a private practice and not going through the school or 
not going to a medical facility. When they get that fee, it may be a little bit of a surprise that it costs so much. It's because they're paying for not just somebody to sit down with their child for an hour. They're paying for all the education, all of the experience. And I mean, that doesn't come lightly. I mean, you shouldn't take that and expect to say, I want the bargain basement psyche valve. I'm making a point to say that because I do feel I hear a lot of people say, well, why is this so expensive? Or why does it cost so much? Well, this is why. There's a lot that goes into becoming a licensed psychologist with the credentials that you need. And that experience is valuable. I like hearing that you think we're valuable, Eric. And it's expensive absolutely for a reason. So psychologists are actually the lowest paid doctoral level healthcare providers of anybody. And we tend to come out of graduate school just to get your basic old doctoral degree. And our average debt leaving grad school is $100,000. Um, and the average starting salary of a psychologist is around 60000 So you do the math and it's really challenging to get your student loans paid off. But for your psychologist, what you really want is somebody who has put in a lot of time and energy and money into getting their credentials. And the people who do charge more are oftentimes the people who are spending a lot of their time in training and reading research journals and in supervision groups and going to conferences and presenting at conferences and making sure that they really are up to the minute in where the research is going, where the neuroscience is going. You do have psychologists who, you know, haven't cracked open a scientific journal since they left grad school and don't update their skills and don't update their test library. Hopefully, you know, steering clear of those people is something that you have the luxury of being able to do. There's one thing I did want to make sure to mention about getting your testing done before 18. So when your child is in that K through 12 age span, it's often a good idea if your child's not making the kind of progress they need to, or if they're having behavior issues, to get kind of one really good private psych eval that goes really in depth so that you have a nice comprehensive sense of who your child is and what they're going to need. And if the psychologist is doing a good job, that one should last for a long time. The idea that we need to get our children retested every three years, that comes out of special ed law. It doesn't come out of any kind of actual real life necessity. So you don't need to get private testing every three years, you know, unless your kid has something really complicated going on, don't do that to yourself. Get, you know, the one really good psych eval. If you think your kid is going to meet diagnostic criteria for an intellectual disability, or you want to have a really good transition plan in place for when they age out, it's a very good idea to make sure that you have one really good evaluation done during those high school years. In the law, it says that you can waive your right to testing. Why would you do that? You know, every three years, your child has the right to be assessed by the school system. And a lot of times parents are pressured into saying that they waive their right to have their child reassessed. Well, here's the problem. If you haven't had your child reassessed in years, maybe because it's just plain old hard to test them, it may be hard for them to tolerate it, you may find yourself dumped out at the end of K-12 education without the documentation that you need to then go and access adult transition services and career training services and adult living situation services for your child. So make sure you get maybe one really good psych eval. It doesn't matter if you get it through the school, hospital, private tester, but get a really good psych eval during the elementary school years and get a really, really good psych eval 
during the high school years that specifically mentions transition. You want to be careful too, and I will shut up after this, Eric, but a lot of psychologists do not know a lot about special education law, and they particularly don't understand transition and transition support services. So you want to make sure to work very closely with your school's transition support service professional people like Eric, local advocates and concierge types of folks who can help you so that your child, as soon as they're done with K through 12, they have a nice smooth transition into the adult world instead of having that awful situation where they fall off the cliff and there's no services and they're living in your basement and everybody's miserable. So, And thank you, Rebecca. I, I agree. I mean, these schools do as best they can, okay. but they're limited to what they know with waivers. Yeah. Because that's not their job, right? Their job is to provide a fair and mm. adequate education. I'm going to push back on that one a little bit. Having been a special ed teacher, perhaps I'm a little bit less forgiving than you are, but they should know. There are transition support teachers, they're called TSTs. There's people personnel workers, there's social workers. There should be a lot of professionals that you can call upon to make sure that your child has a really good transition support plan. It's inexcusable for anybody to age out of K through 12 without having a bridge to the next phase of what they're going to need to have a really good quality of life. And in Maryland, that means signing up for DDA prior to the child turning 21. I'd really, in my opinion, I would love the children, as soon as they get a diagnosis, for the parents to apply to DDA. If you have a child with a mm -hmm. developmental disability, apply to DDA right away. Right. I know there's schools out there, private schools, that are telling parents that to wait. I don't counter that. I, don't, I would agree with you. You I, I think you need to get done as soon as there's a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you want to start that paper trail. Peter Wright of Wright's Law. Wright's Law is a information hub led by two attorneys. It's rightslaw.com. You can go on there and find out your legal rights to special education services and social supports. But again, don't assume that just because you met with a private psychologist and paid that person, you know, a big lump of cash, that they necessarily know what they're doing about special education law. It's a good idea to shop around. It's a good idea to contact advocates and attorneys who will work collaboratively with the school system and not just go in and yell at everybody. There are those. You really want to make sure to get a good team in place because the clock's really ticking when your child's getting ready to age out of K through 12. You want to have all of that taken care of well in advance, not be scrambling at the last second. And I want to reiterate, even though you're in Maryland, everything you just said applies in all... 50 states. It's yeah, not is, Maryland this specific. This is federal law. This is your tax dollars at work. So every time you pay your taxes, it's going towards something really good, which is special education. Believe it or not, we have the best special education, I mean, arguably in almost the whole world. With all of its faults, it's so much better than it was. And the real challenge is making sure it gets better as we roll along. Well, and the challenge I have is when they leave the education world and they become adults, making sure the services are there. Absolutely. And that's where the testing can come in, is getting mm -hmm. this testing, proving the diagnosis, especially to organizations like Social Security or yes. your state waiver, whoever your state waiver agency is. Mm -hmm. They're looking for tests. And in some cases, they'll tell you what tests they want right there yeah. on their website. So Yeah, exactly. They have a very specific set of criteria. You can have, you know, the world's most expensive psych eval in the world, but if that psychologist doesn't understand the criteria for SSI, DDA, voc rehab, you're not getting it. So yeah, you really want to shop around very carefully. Thank you for making the time to talk to me today, Rebecca. This is so and nice to see you again, Eric.
Thank you. I will have your contact information up for people to reach out to you. Is going to your website and then emailing you the best, or do you have is I mean, right now with COVID, maybe not the phone, but don't show up at my house. <laughs> so, <laughs> I pretty much am on email. Whenever I'm not with clients, I'm kind of on email constantly. That's the best way to reach me. But I just want to remind people that email is not really a very private form of communication, even though I supposedly have a HIPAA compliant email account. You really don't want to send a lot of personal information about your child or send me medical records unless you've password protected them because I can't guarantee your privacy there. And if somebody's reached out to you first time, I would limit how much you put into that email initially other than to try to get a call scheduled. Sure. Yeah. And my office manager and I have three directors in my practice. They're all happy to help. Awesome. Well, this has been great. I appreciate you taking the time. And I'm going to sign us off. Oh, okay. We're still on. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening to the ABCs of Disability Planning podcast. We invite your feedback and comments. Please feel free to leave a review wherever you are listening. And don't forget to hit like, follow, and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. For more information, please visit us at www.specialneedsnavigator.us.